They uploaded it to Amazing Tunes, and then they got picked up by Mike Stock to ring. They said, oh, yeah, Mike's, Mike, Mike, Mike really likes the track. Can you send like the vocals over to Mike? So it's like the weirdest email I've ever had to send. Hello, welcome back to the Session Recall podcast. Just before we get into this episode today, I hope you've been enjoying this podcast so far. And what we'd really appreciate is if you've got any feedback for us, if there's anything you'd like to ask us, please drop us a message at podcast.sessionrecall.com just so we get some feedback and stuff so to make sure that we're on the right track. We have a free guide available on our website, uh, sessionrecall.com forward slash band checklist. We've also launched a Session Recall community um, which you can also find out a bit more information just from our homepage, sessionrecall.com. This episode, we're going to split up into two parts over the next two weeks. Yeah, what we're talking about today is about income streams for musicians. It gets split up into different sections, so I thought we'd kind of break this up into two parts. I hope you enjoy, and I'll see you all again at the end. Hello, Hi. everyone. Welcome to the show. <laughs> today, John and I are going to be talking about... Talking about income sources for musicians, because I, I know, like, when people start, it's always thinking about, well, how do artists, how do people make money? And I think it's something that from, you know, like lecturing and teaching, it's not something that's always explicitly clear. What I wanted to do is try and break down some of the different ways of actually earning an income and making money from your music. The first area I thought, like the easiest win for artists and bands who might be starting out is talking a little bit about merchandise. So this is something that like when, you know, when you're playing shows like the benefit of having merchandise might be a way of actually helping to raise a little bit of extra cash to kind of pay for recordings. Merch is still a strong seller. People like merch. It's, um, if you've got a good brand, if you've got if your merch looks good, um, you can shift it. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the things I think sometimes people worry about is like you know like the cost of setting up the like paying for the merchandise in the first thing. So what we found is obviously there's a few places that do like print on demand. So like an easy one to do would be like um, there's a company called Dizzy Jam. And what you can do is if you've got a really good image, you can upload your images to that. And they do digital printing. Basically, like when anything gets made up, then like if anything gets ordered, then it gets printed on like as and when it's ordered, then sent out to the person. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a great way so you don't end up having a massive outlay. So if bands are, you know, struggling to uh, haven't got much in the pot at the beginning, then it's a good way to offer merch to your fans, which is building your brand. But you haven't got the initial setup costs, so that's a obviously a bonus. Um, you can have lots of designs, lots of colours, because obviously the problem when you got when you've got to make the physical things, you need to cover all the sizes. If you, you you kind of have to restrict what you do, really. You don't want too many designs if you're not, unless you're playing in front of loads of people, because every design has to have different sizes: the, the extra smalls, the smalls, medium, large, extra large, double XLs, all those kind of things. So it soon adds up, and you end up with loads left over. But so the downside of using uh, print on demand, it's no good for touring or for your live shows you haven't you haven't got the physical things to sell there so then you can try and get people to sign up or go online hopefully after the gig but ideally you want to play a blinding show people really love the band they go straight out into the foyer and buy a t-shirt that's obviously the dream <laughs> then you've got to have stock then you also need someone to sell the merch so a lot of bands end up having to do that themselves straight off the stage going to sell the merch before the gig but if you've got someone who's there with you driving the van helping you set up or doing sound for you or whatever just having the merch stand near them so they can take care of that so it's extra expense really because you've got to have someone to keep an eye on the numbers as well how many shirts have we got left how many did you get pressed up 
if you're just doing a couple of gigs here and there and they're kind of in pubs or small venues, then you've got to think, is it worth print, printing up loads of T-shirts and caps or whatever it is you want? But obviously, if you're a support or if you're doing decent size shows, then you're going to get some merch made up because the fee might not be that good on the show, but by the time you add 10, 15, 20 T-shirts and some other lines of merch you've got to it every night and you're playing maybe 15, 20 shows and it's that extra money, you know, if it's covering the van or covering the hotels or whatever. So print on demand, great way to have access to lots of designs, lots of colours, no outlay to yourself. Once you're set up on DigiJam, it's it's there, but um, you don't make a lot of money from it. What you do make a lot of money is if you're going to sell physical T-shirts, but having the outlay, how many do you order? Obviously, the more you order, the cheaper they are. So, I mean, you've got to approach that artist by artist, really, and whatever stage they're at, and obviously we can help. And if you're stock-taking and keeping you know, ideas of numbers of what you're shifting then you know kind of how many to sell based on how many people you're playing to. And then when you do the next tour, you'll know. And if you sell out, you sell out. Much better selling out than having 100 yeah. extra smalls. And also your fan base. Yeah. So, um, one of the things I think when I, when I banded, like when I was back in the day, when I back when I was gigging and everything, it was like we actually split our T-shirts 50-50 between guys' guilt guys t-shirts and girls t-shirts and we actually found that the girls tees were the ones that actually sold quicker because sometimes they were the ones that got overlooked hmm. um one of our actually bet in the band one of our best sellers weird not really weirdly but we used to do glow sticks we used to get like um you get like a pack of a hundred or something for like a tenner yeah you sell three for a quid and so we used to do that and then literally like for, you know, we used to play like university. I think we supported Wheatus once and we had sold them on merch just because we just shifted like tons and tons of glow sticks. And then that led to bad, you know, like badges, t-shirts and stuff as well. One of the other things I'd probably say as well is like when we're talking about merchandise, especially for shows that might also include getting like the um, CDs made up as well. or so like, you know, a version of your music available to buy. I know a lot of artists now, obviously there has been a shift towards like digital streaming. And that's where everything is. But if you do, but you know, if you do start getting like a really good, like a really strong following or like a fan base, then the people might want something that might be collectible. Yeah. Um, so like the vinyls, the CDs, and stuff might still be an option to kind of think yeah, about. Yeah, obviously selling. vinyl long turnaround times. But, yeah. Um, CDs pretty easy to get done, short runs, um, getting back quickly. I mean, we usually use a company called Sound Performance, which hopefully will be able to offer you some discounts with them as well, mm. um, and you can get, you know. A thousand of those pretty cheaply nowadays and the turnaround time is really quick but yeah just make sure that like stock what stock you're buying you know there's a case of a rock band it's like they bought they bought they ordered the same amount of each size and then at the end they said well we got loads of extra small and small and mediums left and uh, we sold out of them on the first day and then couldn't shift any i was like well that's because your fan base is all kind of like 40 to 65 year olds who tend to be a bit bigger you know so there's not many of them fitting into an extra small so they hadn't really thought about that and then obviously if you're a pop band and lots of teenagers are coming to uh they're all going to want like kind of uh smaller sizes you know so think about your audience this is where i suppose like when you're looking at like insta tiktok your facebook as well there should be panel you know like if you're on like a business profile you should be able to actually have a look at your demographics and see well what what's the kind of age range what's the makeup of the is it predominantly male is it female so all that information as you develop is something that you can look into and that can help you inform your decision in terms of what you think would work and also ask your fans ask them what they'd like or what they'd like what they think has been cool in the past yeah um, we're gonna have a merch guy on actually talking with us at some point so you can ask you can ask that question directly like so you can say if a band's playing to four thousand people what 
what on average are you selling a night, you know, t-shirt wise? And then if you're just paying, so if they're paying to 4,000 and you're going to be paying to 400, then you can work out what percentage you're kind of going to buy a shirt, you know, if they're buying into the band. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully we'll have someone on who'll be able to answer all those questions. And then you just take that, you know, they'll they're be used to doing small shows as well. There's two two people actually that we're, we're thinking of getting on who can go through the numbers and what they're, they'll be able to go through what a day, what, that could be something you think about as a career path as well. If you're a member on the group here, it's not necessarily you're thinking you might do my band as well, but wouldn't mind going on tour. Maybe um, doing the merch is a, Something you want to explore, you know. Not, so. already, is that what Noel did for someone? Or you went on tour of a band, didn't you? Yeah, he was races? he was roadie, and I'm not sure if he did merch, possibly, um, but he was definitely in the crew for Inspire Carpets. Um, well, you know, while writing and being a musician himself. But I guess those years on the road, learning how how touring works and the work that goes into it, the crew, how important the crew are, and just the day to day running of a tour, yeah, with a decent sized band like that. To be on that is. Um, it's a great experience and great learning curve. Cool. So we've got, as I say, so like as an easy win, just for people starting out, merchandise is a really good one. If you're just starting out and you haven't got much money, then maybe the print-on-demand thing is good. One of the things I would say about print-on-demand is they're not screen-printed. They're normally digitally printed. So what can sometimes happen is the image over time can fade. So I've got like, um, from when we did Leaders Veil, vale, got, I got a couple of hoodies as a trial to see what it was like. Um, absolutely love the hoodie. And like the quality and stuff was good. It's just like after a few washes, like the image faded. Um, we're screen printing that will normally last. I got I got t-shirts from like show my age a little bit now, like you know, 20, 30 years, and like you know, like um and bands give us stuff as well. It's so like the, the, the ones yeah. that screen printed will last a lot, lot longer. So moving on, um, the next thing just really want to talk about then is linking a little bit when we talked about the CDs and stuff, but then talking about royalties. So this is something that I know that loads of people when it's they luckily go, ah. Oh, this is a massive topic to kind of Royalties. try and... I remember them, John. Yeah, back in the 90s. From back in the some. 90s. <laughs> in the UK, you've got... Um, there used to be three main collecting societies. And over time, they've kind of merged together and done partnerships. So you've got performing performing royalties, performance royalties, which are covered by PRS for music. And they cover like the songwriter. So if a songwriter writes a song then that right of the music will go to the people who write the songs. Um, the next one that we have is mechanical royalties. Going back to, say, let's go back to the 90s and stuff before the internet or Napster was a thing. Mechanical royalties would normally be from the sale of albums or singles. Third one is down to sound recording, and that is usually assigned to whoever pays for the recording itself. So if you're working in a studio and you've paid for the recording, then usually that put you as a band, you don't record in. But if a label were putting the money up, they'd be the ones that get an assignment of those rights. No, just making sure that you're registered. I mean, the amount of bands who have been, you know, releasing records and working with us for years, and then it comes up one day and I go, oh, you must have got something for that on your, you know, through PRS. Yeah. And they say, oh, we never, we never registered for PRS. <laughs> it's mad because you actually get a payment. If you register with PRS, you can register every single performance. So if you go on tour, every, every live music venue has to pay a license to PRS and PPL. It's like a joint combined license, I think. Yeah. And what that means is like, if you're the songwriter, you'd get a royalty for performing those songs through that license um, that the, the venue has to pay on top of whatever fee that you have. I remember hearing about in Ireland, they've got um, the, the, the version of PRS is called Imro. And they were saying that there were tour supports, I think, in um, Crow Park, with like 80,000 people. 
And like one of the guys in was chasing people up, and, like chasing up the band. Like they were an unsigned band. They weren't registered. And like, they were going, we've got 20 grand for you because that's like the fee. Like they take a percentage of the ticket sales. Yeah. And so 80,000 tickets, if you're support, you get a percentage of the, the payments from the, from those, from that license. Yeah. So registering becomes really important. And it's something like if you play festivals, there'll normally be reps from PRS and saying like, look, can you give us your set list so we can get you performing yeah. you can get you registered and getting paid and it's incremental it goes up the more people you're paying playing in front of you know for the ppl yeah so even if you're just playing down in the pubs you put your set list you know put your set list in and it goes up depending on how many people you're playing in front of and yeah. those little you know those little bits all add up those and everyone's everyone's getting them if they perform the performers on the tracks you know and yeah. then if you get if you get a play on a major station if you radio two or something then as you say it goes into a pot they can't work out Every, everyone who's played your song, but they kind of base it on the fact that if yeah. Radio 2 are playing it, then you get a percentage of the pot. Yeah. So therefore it must be getting played on in clubs or in factories and every every hairdresser in the country who had Radio 2 on would be playing that song and they all pay a license fee. Yeah. So we've had it before where we've had a, a track getting a single play on Radio 2 and then when you get your PRS statement, it breaks it down and it shows you how much you earned from the radio play, then how much you earned from hairdressers, how much you earned from factories, how much you earned from venues. Because um, they can't work it out. That's where the big artists who are getting played on the big stations all the time get such massive payments because they're getting a massive slice of the pot, massive yeah. share of the pot all the time, aren't they? Yeah. And it all um, kind of it all adds up, doesn't it? Because that that payments and that that's coming from the performance of the sound recording and also the songwriters. So yeah. PRS Music take care of the performance, so it takes care of the sound performance, and then PPL is the sound recording. So then, if you perform as, as a performer, you'd also get some money from PPL, and you'd also get a little bit of money if you own that sound recording. What also happens is, say that you do, say you play Live Lounge, or you go on to like the Cisco locally, say like Radio Wales, um, they they do acoustic sessions from time to time, or like you know like unsigned unplugged sessions. So you get paid a performance for performing your songs via PRS. If you wanted to release that recording, then you might have to come to an agreement with the BBC. There's an artist called Imogen Heap, and what she did, she made a website called Life of a Song, and it was for um, her song like Hide and Seek. I think it got sampled by Jason Derulo and had like another life, but that that one song, I think over the course of its lifetime, say ten years. I think it's earned over a million pounds. Obviously, yeah. that's an extreme one, but it was just picked up by um, a TV supervisor for the OC back in turn of the century. Yeah, and it went huge on MySpace, and then you know it gets resampled and it gets reused again. Yeah, um, I mean, I work with many artists who only had one hit yeah. many, many years ago. <laughs> they've yeah. had a very, you know, they've got a strong fan base, so they can play to lots of people. But of course, because they're playing to decent size crowds. They're still earning good royalties from their PPL checks, the PRS checks that come in, or checks anymore, but uh, direct into your bank account. Yeah, and they've survived because that song is getting rotated on radio. It's getting covered by lots of artists around the world, blah, blah, blah. So one song can then sustain a career for 25, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, if it's a, if it's a big radio hit. A Christmas um, song. Oh, a Christmas song. <laughs> yeah, can earn you great royalties. Let's start work on a Christmas song, John. I did, you know what? I did one years ago before, like when I was in Port of Call, we did one that was called Christmas Robot. Yeah. And it was just like these guys, they used to work in like the building building yard around the corner from the studio. They just said, John, we've got an idea. They didn't tell me anything about it. And it's like, we've got an idea. Just want to see if you want to get on board with it. Just like, just as a laugh. It's like, okay. And then it's like, Chris, like he's like the six foot assistant to like one of the execs and stuff. And he comes in and just puts on this robot voice. <laughs> 
<laughs> he calls himself Christmas Robot. I think they uploaded it to Amazing Tunes, and then they got picked up by Mike Stock. So I ended up having to like I was away for a friend's wedding in Cyprus, and I had a phone call from them while I was out there. So look, um, need to like, I had like a couple of messages and missed call. Can you bring me back as soon as possible? So I like I messaged him said, look, I'm in Cyprus, and then said, so just when you get home, give us a ring. I said, oh, yeah, Mike's, Mike really likes the track. Can you send like the vocals over to Mike? So it's like the weirdest email I've ever had to send and then send like this Christmas robot track. Um, it got featured on Radio 1 it, and they said like the, the promo campaign was intense. It didn't, mm. I don't think it charted, but like they spent a week having to like pretend to be like the six foot, the six foot four guy <laughs> who's like in, in his 40s or whatever, having to put on like this like stupid like, robot voice. <laughs> And have to do all these interviews with like Which Steve Wright and yourself into it. Yeah. And he just said like, it's just exhausting because they had to kind of do it whilst doing their full-time jobs and stuff and they'd be available for all these calls and everything. But yeah. But, you know, the amount of people like we're saying who, who aren't registered yet with those organizations and they should be. And I think yeah. a couple of reasons. One, they just haven't got around to it. Laziness. Another reason they think it's daunting. They don't know what to do. They may be have got as far as reading about everything you need to, to join and all that, and then they think it's too much, so they give up. Some do join and then never fill it in because they have no idea what any of it means. But, I, I mean, I do that for several people, have done for many years, so I take on PPL, PRS, MCPS, registration for um, a lot of artists. Mm. So that's something we, we do and something we can mentor you through as well if you're on um, one of the programmes there. Maybe we'll put together a course on just on MCPS PRS, and we'll get someone from um, one of those organisations to maybe come yeah. on with us on the course. But yeah, it's something that we can do. So if you want us to help you um, through that and talk you through it, then uh, get in touch with us, and we can uh, talk you through it. So just going back over, so we've covered a little bit about merch, about when we're starting, how it can be beneficial. Next one, obviously, about royalties and stuff, and the different ways that royalties can really work is really Nick. How would you describe publishing? I think it's the one it's the one area that people don't quite understand or it's that like they they maybe email their tracks to management companies and record labels but never to publishing company. And of course if you get a label they'll either have a publishing arm or they'll work with publishing companies so then it's all sorted for you. So but if you release stuff yourself it's um it's still a gray area to a lot of people. One of the things that's quite useful about it is it can be like it can almost look like bonus money I suppose. Whereas like it's not expected, it's not. If, if it happens, it's great. But and it can you know like if it gets picked up on the, on the game or something. One of our songs got put on like a PSP game years ago, just like a racing game. It was alongside the likes of like Fallout Boy and a few other bands. We ended up actually getting the fan base in now in South America, but obviously like we never got to a level where we were big enough to yeah. kind of like exploit it. But it, it's just like this idea is where the basic like if you get the publishing, then there might be you can get your song on an advert or onto a TV show. As I mentioned earlier on about Image and Heap, just having that like track placed somewhere where like you know hundreds of thousands, millions of people might watch it or listen to it can expose you to a whole new area as well. Another one, like I remember working on the John Lewis, not John Lewis, I remember working like Tom O'Dell on those like, at Wrong Crowd. It was only in for a couple of days. Um, he got the John Lewis Christmas advert. Yeah. And that song basically, I think he said it paid for his mortgage, got him a new car. And then the next album that came along after that, the label just said, Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Whatever you want to do, it's fine. Um, yeah. Because like the income that came from the publishing from being placed in John Lewis for that Christmas one, it's just like this extra bonus that people might not be expecting. And just having that association from it, it can bring 
extra income and like obviously like you can see a huge increase in then like your streaming revenue your, your physical sales and like your profile itself we work with artists at the moment don't we who have yeah. written songs in the past that were very successful and they haven't released records for a very long time they don't release records in fact yeah but what they do get is they renew their publishing deal every so often and get a massive advance on those songs because the publishing company knows that there's money in those songs. They're kind of etched in history now. They're always going to be played in certain territories. There's a fan-based radio station that's always going to play them, so the publisher can afford to give them large advances against that. And also, you know, once you've had a massive hit album with songs on it that are just going to be around forever, then a publishing company can offer you massive advances then against um, all your future writing as well because they own that catalogue then, which you can yeah. make a lot of money from. But having a good publishing company, like you say, Someone who's going out getting it on video games, someone who's going out getting it on adverts, on TV, because they all, you know, their relationships with the sync agents and with um, the networks and everything. It's brilliant. That's what the publishing company aims to do is the more things like that they can get your song on, then the more the more money they all make. And of course, that then feeds into your fan base and your, your sales as well. But what the publishing side of it is, is the actual getting the song on on those things, not not necessarily getting you a stream although that uh you know that comes off the back of it if someone hears a song then they maybe go and listen to it uh, if they hear it on a computer game or on an advert or something when we get asked the can you get our tracks on tv on film can you get any syncs for us it's very difficult because it's a highly competitive market it's a now. Very, yeah it's a very like specialized area and it's all it all comes back again to networking doesn't it everything that yeah all this like getting cases all that networking getting like in front of the right people for like record labels and um for, and publishing companies and like they'll have connections so it's like meeting the right people and finding the right people can sometimes kind of take the barriers down quite a bit yeah and once you get a song once they take a song off you and they get it on a film and it's a successful film then they're going to come back to you for more tracks you're building up yeah. those relationships with the sync agents they're likely to come back to you again i know a lot of people use publishing sites like taxi and centric music yeah. where they're telling you what kind of songs people are looking for you know they're pitching things to all the writers or the you know and then you can pitch a song if you think you've got a song that the outline fit put your song forward you pay to join these yeah. companies but you know and we've heard many people had a lot of success with them and actually earn a full-time living out of it and others have had nothing one of my mates does does taxi and he's done stuff for like cash in the attic and everything so they'll be going like we want a song in this style like upbeat kind of poppy something and it'd be, it might just be a 30 second clip and it's something that as musicians you could smash out really quickly i remember it was, it, we did dexter's and we one of the songs on the album was meant to be a b-side for a publishing request like your lovely wife yeah and, it, and like <laughs> it's only meant to be like you know it's like what meant to be much before and they end up being put on the album yeah and that would fit uh you know if if someone's asking for a song about a red teapot and you've got a piece of music about a red teapot then you submit it yeah you know because the tag words are really important for people to be able to find tracks as well on on the library music and taxi and things like that there's so many tracks on there's so many people pitching so yeah when you when you're uploading tracks to things to sites like that then the tag words are really important so people can yeah. find it but it's building those relationships like if you can get a relationship with someone who's taken some of your tracks they like they hear your music they like it then they might just come you're in their mind then they might just come straight back to you rather than go searching yeah. on the places they usually search they might just come back they'll have their regular people they yeah. can go to talked a little bit about like um streaming revenue um, mm. i don't really want to spend too much time on it because that's one of like the obvious everyone like, a lot of people now yeah. you can release your music on uh, using a platform like distro kids cd baby TuneCore, all really good options for actually doing that there's there's pros and cons for each one 
Um, and it's just another way, like, you know, getting paid, um, people listening to your track and being available for download in other, in other places. So that's it for this episode of the Session Recall Podcast. Thanks very much for listening. If you do like this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you can like it, subscribe it, or share it to anyone who you think might be interested in this. We'd love to hear your feedback. Um, otherwise, we'll see you all again next week. And thanks again for listening. Cheers, guys.